Christmas it's pretty rare um and um I decided just to uh how do you say schedule Bobby and Megan are here with us tonight and so we have real pastors with us so I have to pretend like uh have to pretend like that we're actually official um but uh yeah sorry but Bobby and Megan pastor uh youth pastors at Green Valley Church here in Austin and they're good friends with Pastor Connor, and uh, so they're going to join us on this fine evening. All right, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get right after it. Father, we love you. We are so grateful for you and for your heart and for your love for us. We ask that you would cause us to, um, to hear clearly. Help us, Father, to have that vision that is past any lenses that we might have based from tradition or based from religion or even maybe based from past experience. Help our vision to go past any restrictive lenses that might be there. Help us, Father, that any measures of sensitivity within our heart and within our mind would be alive and well. And we ask you that our our joy would be made full in you. We thank you and we love you and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. We're going to start tonight as we've been starting throughout this series, um, and we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, I think every service I have given the um, the precursor as to what the Apostles' Creed is and what it's for and why it's important. But let's just suffice to say this. In the early church, there was a whole bunch of different opinions about how things were supposed to be and different belief systems. So they got together all of the leaders of the church, uh, over 300 of them got together, and, um, and, and they formed um, this creed that more or less says, if you're a Christian, this is the Christian orthodoxy that you should have. And the thing that I love about that is it includes everything that's important. It doesn't include if you're sprinkled or if you're dipped. It doesn't include if you shamanamanama or do not. It doesn't include, like, any of that stuff, okay? Um, all the stuff that we divide ourselves by. It, un- it, is, it is uniting and pulling. So we're going to, um, we've been uh, just reading this and declaring this together, this creed, um, at the beginning of each of these teachings so that it can remind us that as we go through this, these teachings, this Refuge Religion series, if we come across something that really just moves your cheese too far, it's okay. You can just say, I don't agree with that, I don't like that, and we can all still get along. Because Jesus is still Lord, and that's what we agree on. Okay? So, alright, let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That is the declaration of our faith. And that is what unites us. And what I I love about that is, there's far more that unites us than this. And 
gotten far too good at breaking fellowship over things that really don't matter. So, we're going to get right into it tonight. The, um, the topic tonight is <clears throat> water to wine. And um, I think that, Pastor Dan, while you're up, would you mind helping me pass this out? Sorry, you just caught, caught my eye. Oh, gotcha. I'll keep on going. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the topic tonight we're going to be looking at is, is water to wine. And I do have to point out, just because it's very important to, to do so, that um, Brittany created this um, beautiful image, and it is very fitting for us because um, this is a picture um, taken um, on the beach in Nice. And um, this was during our last um, France ministry trip. Um, and so somewhere in the midst of there is my hand, and somewhere in the midst of there is Josh's hand, and somewhere in the midst of there is Brittany's hand and Bev's hand, and um, Pastor Crawford and Monica and many other people that we love. And at the forefront, uh, or at the center of the picture, is our beloved Luke, um, Luke Bensong, who is um, one of our very, very, very dearest um, friends in France, and um, and this uh, that they that is uh, Welch's. Uh, that is absolutely not Welch's. That is a Bordeaux red, and I am not going to apologize for that because once you've tasted the real stuff, mm, Welch's just won't do. Okay, so. Um, tonight, uh, Brittany, I thought it was fitting and she chose to use that really wonderful image. When we first set out to tackle this series, Wrecking Religion, I knew almost immediately that I wanted to share this teaching in the middle. There are a few reasons for this. The first is that I felt it might be good to have something between Hell Week and Revelation Week. Last week, we talked about hell. Uh, and next week, uh, and it was a hell of a service, um, next week we're going to talk about Revelation. Um, and, uh, and actually the, the, the topic of the first um, teaching is going to focus probably more so on the rapture and kind of getting some of our eschatology right. And the title of that message is going to be, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. And, uh, and so we're, um, we're going to tackle that. I think we're going to break Revelation into two um, sessions. So we'll, we'll go there, and then we're going to look at the judgment um, and try to look at, uh, as best we can, in the, the, the most difficult book of the Bible to understand and interpret in two teachings. Um, and we're going to try to get that done. But I knew that being said, if we're going to talk about what the rapture really looks like, and we've already talked about what um, uh, what... Uh, the Bible means with hell. See, there's just jokes there, and I just have to just, sometimes I just, you, what you hear is a stutter, and what I'm doing is sidestepping something that probably would get me down a rabbit trail. Um, but I felt like that this would be a good thing to have right in the middle to allow us to some degree to catch our breath. Secondly, I felt strongly that we needed to see this principle of addressing religious systems, which is what we're doing, set forth by Christ in his ministry. See, I need to remind you that the idea of what we're doing in, in talking about this, this Wrecking Religion series, it is not for the intention of being rebellious. It is
is not to be an action of just trying to thumb our noses at our uh, at our faith or the foundation of our faith or those who have gone before us or any other understanding about how something is given. However, we do have to understand that there are things that we have fought and that have crept into our understanding that allow us to leave that back into the text. And many times it is almost like there are icons and idols to what we believe and what we've been told that end up showing up in the temples of our worship. And we have to be very careful because um, when you look at the cleansing that happened in Israel, the thing that always was done is they tore down any other graven image. And sometimes our graven image is whether we're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. Sometimes our graven image is what's held on our cross. Sometimes our graven image is who's going on the cross. Sometimes our graven image is, so if you speak in tongues, does that mean that you're full of the Holy Spirit? Or is can you be full of the Holy Spirit and not speak in tongues? Sometimes our graven images are a lot easier to detect by the naked eye. Things like, is it okay if people come to church in shorts? I clearly think that will send you straight to hell on the quickest path. But um, those things very quickly become graven images. In fact, I, I spoke with somebody I shared this last week who believes that the King James Bible is the only Bible-inspired by God. And while I have no issue if that's the Bible you choose to read, um, the thing that I asked him is, well, why do you think that? And he said, because that's what my parents told me. It's the only Bible they ever used. And I said, well, why do you think they think that? And he said, well, that's because that was the only Bible their grandparents ever used. And pretty soon it becomes like the meatloaf. I've given you this story before, but um, the young girl is learning how to make meatloaf from her mom. And they are putting together the meatloaf and they cut it in half and they put half on one tray and half on another tray and, and put it separately in the oven. And the little girl asks the mother and says, well, why do we, why do we cut it in half and <clears throat> put it into two different trays to put it in the oven to cook the meatloaf? Why do we do that? Well, I don't really know. I don't know if the flavor's better that way. I don't know if it, if it cooks more thoroughly that way. I don't really know. That's the way my, grand, or my mother, which would have been her grandmother, the young girl's grandmother, taught me. Let's go ask her. So they go to her house and say, Grandma, why did you teach Mom to make meatloaf by cutting it in half before you put it in the oven to cook? And she said, was it because the flavor was so much better? This is the only way I know how to do it. And she said, no, it's because I didn't have a big enough pan for a meatloaf. But that's what happens in church. So the second thing we're going to do, uh, or reason I felt it important to look at what we're going to look at tonight, is because this is the message of Christ. You see, when it comes to how we see Jesus, I've met two groups of people in my life. Um, there are many more, but certainly these two stand out to me. The first prefer to see him as a six-foot-tall, blue-eyed, thin, most often white guy, but is loving and soft-spoken, kind and forgiving. The second group eschews that Jesus for the one running with a whip, turning over tables, throwing a temple tantrum. The second group prefers to think of Jesus as the guy riding a white horse coming from the sky to kill millions of people in the Battle of Armageddon like a particularly ticked off version of Dirty Harry. We'll address that scene next week, but for today, 
it's important to look at the first miracle of Jesus and how it sets the stage to address religious systems and the world systems within his earthly life. I've always loved the miracle of Cana. Secretly, I've often regarded it as my favorite. But much like favorite songs, that can change from week to week. If you ask me today what my favorite song is, it's probably different than last week. Lately, it's been Stand By Me. Um, but that could change in a couple weeks. Um, who knows, the Macarena might be number one on my list um, coming up soon. But the thing that I like about this is, and, and has always made it special for me, is the superfluous mes- uh, uh, aspect of this specific miracle. It's not a miracle that is meeting a, a life-demanding need. The thing that I love about it is Jesus chooses for his first miracle to be something, uh, dare I say, whimsical. I mean, think about some of the other miracles. Jairus' daughter, you read about, you know, the, the people are coming to, a, to Jesus and appealing because their child has died or because their, their young man, is he's throwing himself in the fire. He's so possessed by demons. You think about all of these miracles, and yet this one is first. Maybe it was not the flashiest, but I think there's something about the nature of Jesus that you see in this. The second is the fact that this miracle follows a simple request from his mother who just doesn't want the party to end. Whether this is to avoid embarrassment for the wedding party or simply because it was a great party, we don't know. But either way, I think it speaks so clearly to the nature of the God we serve. And if I was a good preacher, I would focus the message on this question. Has your wine run out? What is it? Do you need Jesus to come get you some wine? But we're not going to do that. We're going to look specifically at why John picked this miracle first. John, the writer of this story, is also my favorite gospel writer. John isn't very concerned with some of the things that the other synoptic gospel writers focus themselves on. John is the only one that doesn't give any care or concern for chronological importance. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all focus their Gospels, and they call them the synoptics for a reason, because they all have a chronological order that has to be accurate. They went through, uh, you know, various, and, and I have no, no doubt, copious amounts of research to make sure this was accurate in the order. John doesn't work that way. John's an artist. John is the only gospel that when you read it, order is of no importance. He's telling a story. And so I always tell people when they first start coming to church or, or um, uh, you know, commit themselves, commit their lives to the Lord, I always tell them, start with the gospel of John and then read the Bible. Because there's a love message that there's there, but there is a relationship message that is there. And I think that the reason that John does it this way is he's an artist. In fact, John is the only one that takes the cleansing of the temple and puts it at the beginning of his book when the other three clearly indicate to us that the cleansing of the temple where Jesus turned over tables happens in the last week of his life, the last week of his ministry. John puts it at the beginning of the book. This has led many people to say, well, that means Jesus did it twice. That's just inaccurate if you study how John writes. John is an artist, and he's telling a story, and he's more interested.
interested with conveying the nature of Jesus than a chronological history book that has to have the dates and times in order. In fact, I would suggest to you that the reason at the beginning of the Gospel of John, he puts the cleansing of the temple and the turning of water to wine back to back is because he wants to show us the reality. Let me do that again. A little bit more. Uh, he needs, wants to show us the reality, the juxtaposition of the nature of Jesus. In Cana, Jesus turns water into wine to keep the party going. But in Jerusalem, Jesus makes a whip and shuts down a religious service. John's trying to talk to us very clearly in back-to-back pictures about who Jesus is and what he was here to do. Mary is one of the stars of this story. She tells Jesus simply to have no wine. To have no more wine. To me, this symbolizes the lack of an element of mystery, of richness, of flavor, of something old and aged that perfectly is right to drink now. Then she looks at the servants and says simply, whatever he tells you to do, do that. This is the only time in all of Scripture that we find Mary giving an instruction. And it's very important. There is an element here that implies without following whatever he says to you, the wine will inevitably run out. I would like to suggest to you that as soon as you stop doing whatever he tells you to do, the wine will run out. You see, we're all in a water to wine business. And the point is, can he keep turning our water, which is what we bring to him, into wine? But as soon as we stop doing whatever he says, we have at that moment relegated our life to the water that it is, rather than the wine that it can become. We're going to start this morning, uh, excuse me, with the end of the story. And I'll just give you a... uh, a little bit of a background about how this works as we look at the text. Read with me, if you will, verse 11. We're going to start there, and then we'll talk. John chapter 2, verse 11, this is from the Passion Translation. This miracle in Cana was the first of many extraordinary miracles Jesus performed in Galilee. This was a sign revealing His glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, one of the things that I find to be so fascinating within this story is it really speaks to the human experience. In fact, it is embedded within the human experience to ask questions. See, I was brought up in an environment that asked questions, but I had a very just I had a very uh, opposing environment growing up. Because in my home, my parents taught me to ask questions. Maybe I took that a little too far. You'd have to talk to my mom to find that out. Uh, Because I I think that I applied that uh, with a broad brush. But I, I know that growing up, there was something in me that just wanted to ask questions. Well, I remember asking uh, the youth pastor um, that I, I was in his youth group, and I remember asking him, what do, what do you believe about the rapture? And he said, well, the assembly of God believes this. And I said, that's not what I asked you. I wanted to ask, and it wasn't to be argumentative. It wasn't to be rebellious. I wanted to understand 
And yet there was this other thing, because as a pastor, what you oftentimes learn is you learn as a pastor to preach for the sake of agreement. See, a pastor's job is not that much different than a lawyer's job in most of the postmodern pop Christianity church in America. We preach so that we can all agree and get along. I bring a point to make sure you agree. And as soon as somebody doesn't agree, as soon as somebody has a different thought than the one that was presented that we all agree upon, they either have to leave to go to a place where they do agree with that thought or they have to conform to this thought. That's really not what Jesus was ever coming to do. In fact, I would like to suggest that Jesus' preaching was never for the sake of agreement, but for the sake of inspiration. Jesus taught to inspire thought. Jesus taught to challenge systems. Jesus taught for the sake of inspiring something within people where they would think outside of themselves and never taught for the purpose um, of, of we all have to agree and see it exactly like this. And what's happened in church in many cases is pastors who have been taught as I was that you have to preach so that people agree. Because if you preach to inspire people to think, thoughts are scary things. Because if somebody has their own thought, then we disagree. And as soon as we disagree, we have division. As soon as we have division, people leave the church and tithes go down. That's what I was taught as a pastor. And so I always have had this weird thing where on one hand, I've grown up thinking, I want, I know there's questions I want to answer. And on the other hand, I've thought, well, but questions cause problems. It's the, the, the um, as we talked about last Thursday, at the end of the day, what I came up with is, well, questions may cause problems, but what the hell? Please reference last week's teaching in case you got very confused about what I'm talking about. We talked about hell. So, <clears throat> what I think is interesting is the embedded nature within humanity to ask questions. We can't escape it. Every civilization in the record of humanity has asked these questions. Who are we? How did we get here? What is our meaning? Is there something out there? So from the very beginning, we find that religion is one of the things humanity has created to help us be provided with answers. It gives us a sense of knowing, of belonging, and of security. Religion is something we have used to bridge the gap between mystery and understanding. It provides a system of rules and guidelines to keep us on the path to the answers we seek. We seek. But make no mistake, religion is a man-made system. We provide religion because we feel like it bridges the gap between us and God. So then we come up with a belief system that bridges that gap. It's like if you can imagine there's a chasm between us and God and religion becomes our bridge to get us across that. It is a man-made system. Religion can be well-intending and covenanting, but I'm using the term to reference any system of belief, behavior, or belonging that we put between us and God. To get to God, I use this bridge, if you will, called the system of religion. The problem is, from his perspective, we never needed a bridge in the first place. We were never separate in the first place. 
spaces, what we intended to be a bridge quickly becomes a wall. If not a wall for us, certainly a wall for anyone not like us. This is how a bridge building party can turn into build that wall party. And very quickly, even if the wall isn't something that prevents us from getting to him, my bridge of religious system quickly becomes a wall to anyone that doesn't adhere to my religious system and then prevents those from getting to a God that they were never separate from in the first place. So in comes Jesus. He brings the message that says religion is redundant and unnecessary. I'm going to say that again. Jesus comes with a message that challenges both the world system, Rome, and the religious system. And he provides a message that says religion is unnecessary and redundant in trying to get to God because we already have him. Jesus came to show us the way to this God is simply grace through faith, where awareness is the only access password required to know this love that has always been and will always be. Jesus comes on the scene and takes on religion right away. Jesus was all about wrecking religion. So we read the the last verse of this story, which simply says that Jesus did this miracle and came. It was his first miracle, first of the extraordinary miracles that he did, and this was a sign. So interestingly enough, when you see this, this verse is packed with understanding that's going to frame the rest of the text for us. When you see this called his first miracle, this is not the Greek word protos. Protos would say the first one in chronological order, the prototype, if you will. This is not the word protos. In fact, it's the word arche, which is where we get the word archetype, or we we get the word architect, or we get the word arch, A-R-C-H-E. And this actually, if you've heard somebody say that they have an arch enemy, if you say that something is an, is an arch something, it's, it's a very premier, it's the most. So when you see this as the first miracle of Jesus, while yes, it is chronologically his first miracle, that's not what John's conveying. John uses very specific language to describe to us that this miracle is an arche miracle. And what I love about that is that this miracle is one where the paradigm of Jesus' entire ministry is set. This miracle is intended to set the tone in John's telling about everything Jesus was all about. John is saying through this miracle we get the theme of what Jesus' ministry is all about. It's then called a sign. See what it says. It's a sign revealing his glory. This sign is really interesting because a sign is a miracle. It can be a miracle, but it's always a miracle that points to something else. Number one. We've defined this before. We've talked about how signs that are over doorways, or if you get to a restaurant, there's a sign in the parking lot. You don't pull up to the sign, look at it, go, well, we're still home. We've seen the sign, as Asa Face used to say. I saw the sign when it opened up. What you find is that a sign is pointing to a greater reality. So a sign is always a sign, exit sign over that door. If you stop at the exit sign, if there's a fire and we say, everybody go to the exits, and you stop at the sign and say, I see the exit, you're probably not in for 
the type of escape you were hoping for because it points to a greater reality. What's the greater reality? The doorway. The other side of the door is the greater reality. So this sign, first of all, points to another reality. The second thing about signs, you always find in Jesus' ministry that he would do miracles and signs, and they were defined differently for a very specific reason, because signs always dealt with uncovering or overturning a religious or demonic system. So there would be times where he would heal somebody from deafness and it would be called a miracle, and times where he would heal somebody from deafness and it would be called a sign. Oftentimes the difference is when he would heal somebody from deafness and it was called a sign, he was doing it on the Sabbath because he was turning over the system. So signs are typically dealing, there's a duplication of the intent that's trying to be conveyed. So this is called a sign. Now, from the beginning of the story, a wedding always speaks of a time where there would be this uniting of God with his people. So you find here in the story, John chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm not, we're not going to read it all together. You have it there with you. And, and I talked with Aaron earlier, and he said, you know, Joe, we just don't have enough time to read the whole verse. And so I said, well, you're right. I'm not that religious or smart. So I'm just going to reference it, but you have it there in front of you, and you can go through it um, in your own time. But, but it's, the scene is built around this wedding, and a wedding in Jewish culture is very, very significant. In Jewish culture, the wedding or a wedding always spoke of a uniting of God with his people. So the fact that this first miracle took place within the framework of a wedding, it always was going to mean something to the Jewish people that we would be lost if we didn't understand that. And I'm not saying that if you never knew that, then you could say, well, that just takes, you know, that just takes the fire right out of it, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. But it is important to understand because Jesus, especially because John's book is all about relationships. Hear me if you don't hear anything else. When you read John, if you don't read John through the understanding of defining that Jesus came to cause union and us as humans who are intended to be relational, to be restored to a relational God. If you don't see relationship and union within everything John says, you're missing the point of how he's writing. John's book is a book about relationships. And so when he's talking about this, the wedding is very important because that's the restoring of relationships. It's a union that's happening. That's setting the tone. This is why John puts this at the beginning. He doesn't start with who begat, who begat, who begat, who. He doesn't start with the nativity scene. He's the only guy that doesn't touch any of that except at the beginning. He goes here. Why? Because that's what John was trying to talk to us about. So it's undoubtedly not coincidental that at a wedding feast, Jesus chooses to perform his first miracle. Jesus, the mother of Mary, is there. His disciples are there, as is um, many of their friends. This is undoubtedly within their neighborhood. In fact, you find out that this is in the Galilee area, so this would be like a local wedding with some folks that you know. It's not like Jesus and his disciples weren't wedding crashers, the first edition. They didn't just drive down the road until they saw, um, you know, a sign that said, you know, Smiths and the Adams here, you know. It, it, It wasn't like that. 
what they did is they were invited because it was something within their neighborhood. Mary comes to Jesus at the beginning in verse 3 and says they have no wine. There's no wine left. Can you do anything about it? And I love that it's ultimately saying the religious system has dried up. That's really what this whole thing is about. The religious system has dried up. Jesus, can you do something about it? Jesus addresses a request by saying his hour had not yet come. The thing that interests me about this is I've always wondered, then why did you do it? Have you ever wondered that? Because we think timing all the time. So Jesus looks at her and says, it's not the right time. And she's like, please, and he's like, okay, sure. Doesn't that go against everything we've been taught about how the timing of God works? So you have to understand that that's not the context. We're going to get there, but quickly I need to address this because I've said this and I stand on it most firmly. Jesus was a feminist. Jesus was maybe the only feminist you find in the entire New Testament. Jesus was a feminist. So when he looks at his mother and says, woman, my hour has not yet come, that's not a derogatory statement. And and if there's any men in the room, I would encourage you, whether it's your aunt, your sister, your wife, or your mother, don't come to them and say, woman, I, I would, that's a bad move. It will not end well. Um, so just as a, a point of free advice. So when he says that, Jesus is not, it's very, very, just as in our culture, it would be disrespectful to say that to your mother. It was disrespectful in their culture as well. Not normal. There were many, many different terminologies used that were very endearing for father or mother, paternal roles. And so Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. The reason he says woman here is because there's a dividing line that's happening. You see, my hour has not yet come. What he's actually saying is, if I do this and it's put on full display, they'll kill me for it. Because as we're going to talk in a minute, that's how serious of an offense this miracle was. Jesus says, if I don't do this right, my ministry will start before I have the opportunity to walk through what I'm supposed to walk through and to demonstrate to humanity who God really is. And so my hour has not yet come. Is not saying, um, I can't do this. Uh, I shouldn't do this. It's not right. What he's saying is, it's not the hour or the time for me to really be put on center stage yet. There are things I need to do. And so there's this conversation that happens between them because if he does this wrong and it's public, it will cost him his life. And he knows that. So he says to her, woman, what's interesting is the reason he says woman is because he recognizes he's telling her this miracle will spark a chain of events moving him from just being her son to now being her messiah. saying, from this point forward, I will always be your son, but I will now be your Lord and you my disciple. From this point forward, this will be the the jumping board. This will be the springboard to my death. He 
and some of these numbers, can you imagine the weight of that as Jesus conveys this command? Mother, are you ready for the change that's going to happen in this world? Her response is incredible. I would imagine that there's a pause for Mary as she considers the weight of her next decision. Then she turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her humanity, has just embraced the death of her son. Has just embraced the cost of this meal of life that she brings into the world. She tells the servants to fill these stone water pots with water. Next, they draw it out and give it to the master of the feast, and he explains that this is the best wine yet. That's the end, right? That's the, that's, that's, that's it. That's what it's all about. So we've just fed it all. We've done it all. We can go home. Actually, no. Because interestingly enough, the miracle gets very little attention from John. The miracle of water to wine, the, 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 we don't, how, do you read about like, you know, what happens that after they, they, they dip into the wine, that then Peter is able to do the splits, um, and they break into the YMCA, and, um, you know, everybody is, gets out on the dance floor, and they're doing the electric slide, um, which is difficult in their robes, um, so they have to take off their sandals. We don't read any of that stuff. What he goes into great, copious detail to describe to us is the water pots. He doesn't do this with any other detail in this story. He spends more time telling us about the water pots feast than he does the wine that is the actual miracle. He doesn't give any other detail. He doesn't tell you that the tables are 10 feet long. He doesn't tell you that there's 36 people there. He doesn't tell you that that um, they had just finished eating their, their, um, their braised um, lamb with spiced potatoes and that the bride and groom were sitting on oak chairs. He doesn't give detail for anything else other than the pots. He's trying to draw our attention to something that's vital because it's the point of the whole miracle in the first place. You see, Jesus could have turned water to wine anytime. Jesus could have turned nothing into wine. So what's the point? The point is that John goes into great detail and slows down the story to describe to us the intricate nature of these vessels. First, he describes that these were pots used for religious ceremonies. Why did Jesus do this? It was completely unnecessary. Think about this. Jesus is, is sitting around. They had just been drinking wine. Most wedding feasts last a couple days. I don't know how many bottles of wine you go through in a couple days of feasting. But there had been plenty, enough feasting that the wine had run out. So let me ask you a question. Wouldn't there have been emptiness? If they had just drank all of the wine, wouldn't there be empty wine bottles or wine kegs or wine skins or wine boxes if you really like your wine on the higher level of wine connoisseuring? Right? There would have been whatever wine container they just drank from empty in plenty. 
So why did Jesus go out of his way to use these stone pots? This is where the divide begins. Jesus, the, the servants look at Jesus after Mary's instructed, instructed them, do whatever he says to you. They look at Jesus and Jesus says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to take those Let's take the six pots you said that were just sold. He literally looks around the room and goes, let's see how this works. Intentionally antagonistic to the religious system. He didn't have to do this. Jesus could have all of a sudden had the first pony keg of wine appear in all of time. You know, and, and they're, you know, they're pumping and, you know, doing, that could have happened. That's not what he did. He says to them, I want you to fill these six stone jars. We cannot escape the fact that Jesus' first miracle goes out of his way to intentionally desecrate a religious icon. To desecrate a religious icon. This was unnecessary, but he goes out of his way to make a point. It's a sign, and this whole story is replete with symbols. Yeah, I guess they did have some significance there about the stone pots and about Peter. Just let me just say this. We have been told that Peter's name, Jesus gave him the name. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I give you this name now, Peter, Petrus. And we say that that means rock. In fact, I've heard people joke and say that Peter was the first rock. So what you find, I can't say that name without being da-da-da-da-da in my head. But that term, interestingly enough, I don't know why we've tra- translated it rock. Every other time this term is used, it's translated stone. In fact, every other time in the New Testament this word is used, it's translated stone. And it's a word that means a specific type of stone that is considered it's acceptable for, for use during religious ceremonies. So Jesus takes this thought, this, this idea of, of the religious ceremony, and he looks at them and says, okay, I want you to take those, and, and I want to make sure that we really, really, really understand the weight of what he's just done. Because these are religious icons. And he takes these stones that are used to cause purification or sanctification to come. So John's gospel pulls from this intent or understanding about these stone pots. Because the thing that you have to understand is everything in Judaism says that stone is the most pure or incorruptible substance. It would be... Uh, a liken to, in our culture, gold or diamond, how we speak of gold or diamond. Stone was that in Judaism. In fact, they, they felt like that there was this thought that stone was impermeable to our uh, 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 mistakes or sins or failures or missing of the marks. So what they would do is they would actually use these pots to wash their hands from the impurity of being unclean. 
see, the first thing you have to understand is they had these mishpachs that were baths, like it looked like a stone bath that the wealthy Jewish people had in their homes. And this is what they did religious ritual bathing in to become cleansed if they had done something wrong or encountered somebody who was unclean. However, much like many of us, they were a little bit obsessed with staying clean. So they also, in between the ritual baths that they would take to rid themselves of the impurities of the unclean, they also had these stone pots that were sanctified and that were called holy. It would have been similar to Catholic holy water. And they filled this with water, and in, the, in between the ritual bath, now this, the ritual bath is not something where you take your dial soap and your head and shoulders. The ritual bath is only used, it's not for washing off dirt, it's only used for religious sanctification. So in between the religious baths or the ritual baths, they would walk by these water pots and wash their hands in case they had encountered something or someone that was unclean, and they didn't know it. Now, this is an interesting thing, because they actually taught in the Old Testament that if you had committed a sin, you were unclean. However, it went further. It said that if you were unclean and touched a clean person, that person also became unclean. Further, if you actually, as an unclean person, sat on a chair, and then a clean person sat on that same chair after you got up, not knowing that you had been unclean, that chair became unclean, and the person who was clean but sat on the unclean chair became unclean. It was something like religious cooties. It's about the best thing I can come up with to compare. You know how we would do that at grade school, right? All of a sudden, now that chair has cooties. Anybody that touches that chair also has cooties. Well, that's what this was. That's how Leviticus described being clean and unclean. And can you imagine spending your whole life obsessed with the fact that you might brush up against something or someone who was unclean? So that's why they kept these religious pots around so they could wash themselves perpetually. Okay, ritual bath is on Monday, but what if the rapture happens on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? And, and before we start throwing stones at our Jewish brothers and sisters for them being fearful in their ritual and religious observances, how many of us have prayed prayers and said, God, if I've committed any sins and ones I don't even know about, please forgive me of those? How many times have you repented for things that you didn't know you did? I used to do the coverall prayer before I went to sleep every single night. I didn't like, I would immediately, I would do, I was a good boy, always, perfect, not perfect. Um, uh, but if you, uh, if, if I did something wrong, if I ticked my brother off or, you know, I would like, I would, um, he would, he was obsessed with the yard and so he would get it perfect and mowed and then I would intentionally go ride my bike through it just to mess up his grass growing. So then after that, because I was a good Christian boy, I would repent, of course, because that was a sin. You know, I was going to burn in hell for that. Um, however, I would still, at the end of the day, before I go off to sleep, Lord, if there's, you know, forgive me for this, forgive me. And if there's anything else that I've done today that I don't even know about, forgive me for that too. Why? Because I might die before I wake up. You know, we taught our kids this whole, now I lay me down to sleep. If I die before I wake, what? Like, I didn't even know this was an issue. 
But now, clearly it is. I could die before I wake. I didn't even know that could happen. thought you had to be awake and see it coming. But now as a kid, I'm thinking if I die before I wake, I better make sure there's no sin. So it's the exact same thing. How many times have you been around people who every time there's an altar call, they come running up and they get saved again and again and again. If nothing else, they get saved every year when there's tent revivals or church plants. So at least biannually, I was getting resaved. And so in that culture, then we constantly are doing a repentance prayer. Because at any moment, God could either split the sky and send me south, or I could be left behind. And so this is the same thing they had these pots for. They were holy, they were consecrated, and it was like their coveralls emptied. So if they sat in an unholy chair and didn't know it, they just would walk by these pots and scratch their hands off them, and now all of a sudden... They're clean again. These are the religious pots that these transgressors have to recognize and recognize and recognize. Now, it's also very interesting to understand that the use of numbers with John was very important. So he says that there were six pots. There are two things specifically that six would speak of, and we're going to wrap up here in our few minutes. But number one, six would be the number of incomplete. Six in Jewish culture could mean the number of something that was incomplete. The reason those six pots that were the religious pots is because Jesus is signifying, John is clarifying to us that Jesus is using us, signifying that our religious system will always be incomplete in getting us in relationship with God. Our religious Icons and traditions and rituals will always fall short of what God intended. They're incomplete. They're not wrong. They're just incomplete. It's like living out of the Old Testament. It's not wrong. It's just incomplete. The second thing is six was the number used to speak of the sixth day of creation where man was created. To the Jewish people, it spoke about relationship and restoration of union. It spoke about the otherness of man and woman and the beauty of that union. And finally, it spoke of the transition where our life, which is water, is brought through transition of relationship into the joyous elixir that is wine. The six pots spoke of the restoration of the joyous union between water and wine. And that six was relationship. It was relational. That's why there were six. He was saying, I'm going to take what's incomplete. I'm going to take this thing that identifies and speaks of man. And I'm going to, through the water that's in those pots, signifying the incomplete thing that man can only do by itself. Man can still, cannot get there without me. I'm going to take that and I'm going to create This is where John pulls in the message of his entire gospel, which is you are not here for the purpose of surviving until heaven, but for thriving on earth in his kingdom. The joy that is life more abundant is what Jesus came to show us. This rich.
ritual that Jesus utilizes in this incredible story, it, I, I don't think we can possibly understand how offensive this would be. First of all, there are six pots, and the Bible says they hold 20 to 30 gallons of water each. Okay? 20 to 30 gallons of water each. That's roughly 180 gallons of wine or 900 bottles. That's a lot of party fuel. That's a pretty good way to start into the miracle niche wine making out of water market. I don't just make water into wine. I do it in surplus. And I don't know if you want to add some math to it, but that's 30 bucks a bottle, 900 bottles. Pretty decent miracle. So Jesus does this and creates upset. It, that is the nature of this miracle that's showing the playful nature of God, the playful nature of Jesus, the superfluous nature of this miracle in that it's not something that is life-threatening, but it's more about showing I intend your life to constantly be going from water into wine and water into wine, and I intend for the party not to end. I want it to be every element of who you are going from just living to life and life more abundant. I want to take the systems that we prop up to try to be bridges and end up becoming walls. He wants to take those and say that bridge was never needed in the first place. Here's some wine. And so what you find within this is these pots were the things that contained their holy water. We don't have language enough to define how offensive this would be. The best way I could come up with it is to capture the offense. It would be equivalent to somebody coming into a very conservative church and saying, let's serve jello shots out of the baptismal font. Let's take the communion wafers and make barbecue sliders. Can you imagine how offensive this would be to people? Jello shots out of the baptismal and everybody goes, ooh. That's what this was. This was the most offensive thing possible to them. The challenge that Jesus comes to show us is, I'm coming to wreck the system that you thought was to propel you to me, but actually was a fence that kept you from me. And I'm coming to show you that you are never separate from me, because even if you make your bed in hell, I'm there with you also. I'm coming to indicate to you that there are some things you have to deal with surgically where you very meticulously remove things. And there's other things you need a baseball bat and a sledgehammer. And what Jesus shows us is he very, very quickly indicates to us, number one, he, God's perfect plan for our entire life is to go through the cycle of water to wine. It's not going to be wine all the time. When I was studying this, one of the things I found is that people would use Dionysius was was a Greek the Greek god of wine, and oftentimes people will define this and say, well, it's it, this is just Jesus uh, being told as Dionysius. But one of the funny things about that is that every time I would look up a picture of Dionysius, he was always naked, which I guess is happens a lot if your whole life is making wine, just providing wine. Apparently, you just your clothes, you know, apparently you just have some kilos because some people menstruate. So what you find is that within this idea of wine, it's not wine to wine. It's always water to wine. Why? Because 
if it wasn't for the darkness that you find at the at the end of the previous gospel, if it wasn't for the darkness at the end of Luke's gospel, we wouldn't be able to see the light that comes at the beginning of John's. There is this thing that the dark night of the soul is a very real thing where we press through challenging, where we press through difficulty, we press through, and we find that in the midst of that, we come with water saying, all I have, Father, all I have, God, is, is who I am in my humanity, and I offer it to you saying, I can't do it on my own. Then he makes wine. We don't live wine to wine or we'd be drunk all the time. But he finds new places within us where it's just water and says, okay, that's, that's your best. I'm just going to make that wine. I'm going to make that joy. Where we come to him with happiness and he does make it big. The challenge is religious ritual is a zero-sum game. We keep having to repeat the ritual, and it becomes a codependent system of always having to go back in order to keep ourselves pure enough to be ready for the next thing. In fact, the religious system, do you realize the religious system demands for your sin? If anybody ever did actually become holy as God was holy, the religious system would then become pointless as we fail. Why? Because the religious lifestyle is coming to God in a broken, dirty, sinful piece of rotten nothing so that his grace and forgiveness can heal you and forgive you. So if we ever did actually get holy, our system would fall apart anyway. Let me just give you a really, 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 really unique thing to think about from Paul in Hebrews. Hebrews 10, and it's a First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. He says, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all. So guess what? From the, from the work of Jesus, you are as perfect as you will ever be. We start with broken humanity. God starts with goodness. God starts at goodness and love and works from there. We start at broken and sinful and try to get to the same point. And it demands for our separation religious systems to be operational. Why? Because my religious system then tells me you're separate. Here's how you get unseparate. What God says is you were never separate in the first place. You've always been mine. Everything that I have is yours. And what Jesus says here, Paul says, Hebrew says, I think, sorry, uh, is that this idea of Jesus' work is once and for all, for all. So who's been restored? As this wraps up, as this miracle story wraps up, the servants know what happened. The disciples know what happened, but nobody else does. In fact, they take the wine to the head of the feast, and he's the guy in charge of everything. He calls him the, the Lord of the feast. He's, he more or less would be like our wedding planner. Like, you know, how you, if you really want to have a good wedding, I can change the location of your wedding planner. Uh, 
But uh, whoever the wedding planner is, that's the person you hire to make sure everything goes off without a hitch, as they say. People are getting hitched, but there's no other hitches. Uh, and so they go through this circumstance. They take him to wine. Can you imagine how freaked out? I've been around enough weddings, whether it be with the band or in, in attendance or officiating. They would be freaking out. I've seen cops and her mom and her do a wedding, and they run out of food before everybody's eaten. Armageddon. End of days. We're talking things explode. And so I can't imagine, especially in that culture, how offensive it would be. So can you imagine when they go up to the guy who put it all together, he was the guy that said how much wine they needed in the first place, because just off cock, I've watched her do the calculations. Everybody's going to eat this much of this many ounces per person. Okay, there's two ounces of chicken per person. And then you've got to put a little bit of fudge in there, so the person wants four ounces of chicken. And you hope that it's overcome by the person that wants zero ounces of chicken. Well, they have somebody that does this for wine, except he's real thirsty. So they go to this guy who's thinking that his career is over as wedding planner. And they say, hey, we found some wine, taste it. He freaks out and he says to the groom, hey, where did this wine come from? You've been holding out on me. That's essentially what he's saying. What have you been doing? The groom doesn't know where it comes from. So they're all just going, cool, there's wine. But the thing that I think is really, really, really interesting is that as this happens, the servants are the ones doing the miracle. And here's what we're going to close. So the servants are the ones who are in between. The servants are the ones. Jesus looks at them and says, go get these pots, the religious ritual pots. Then he says, fill them with water. Now he says, take some of that to the Lord of the feast. Notice that the servants are the ones who are mobile, who are doing the work. They're being functional. This isn't Jesus sitting back on his uh, on his stool somewhere or somebody's feeding him grapes and, you know, fanning him. This is the indication that John's trying to get throughout his whole gospel. This is the message of John. The message of John is that God, who is love and is relational, has made us in his image. And from there, he's intended to accomplish everything in partnership with us through relationship. Jesus came to show us that no system was needed to reunite us with God because he had never left. Only from our vantage point was there separation. So he became the one to bring us back to original goodness and original love in perfect partnership with the God of all the universe. This is Jesus and what he did. And it's all about relationship. What he says is, I've come to show you what God really wants for you. And ultimately, as we said a couple weeks ago, Jesus is what God had to say. Jesus is the word. Jesus is what God had to say. So he upends it all right here. And he chooses, John shows us this beauty in what we would consider a very unholy setting. I don't know any other way to say when they had drunk all the wine other than they were drunk. In fact, they would typically keep the uh, get the best wine early. You want to know why? Because drunk people will drink Boomsbaum. Sober people want Bordeaux. And so the, 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 do you realize Jesus is participating in that and then go 
goes into the church and ends with religious folks. Why? Because Jesus is showing us from the onset of his ministry that it's not about our system. There's never been a system sufficient to contain about relationship. He's invited us into this experience, this communion, this fellowship with him so we get to know him. So we're going to, um, we're going to stop the live stream and I know we have a lot of people who are gone, whether it's traveling um, or whether it's sickness. We certainly pray for all the people who are leaving. I'm just going to go ahead and make sure to post that and grab this just in case because sometimes you like to do your own posts. Uh, you, yeah, you can go ahead and stop the recording. <laughs>